0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us hear the word of God. This afternoon, this fourth Sunday of Advent, we read from the prophecy of Micah concerning the coming of the Savior. In the chapters 4 and 5 of his prophecy, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem... He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hoofs of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Our text this afternoon is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if the political pundits have it right, our government commissions two opinion polls every day. That's How it is, according to the political pundits, our government, the government of Canada, commissions two opinion polls not every year, not every month, not every week, but every day. Now, whether this statistic is accurate or not, there's no doubt, I think, that politicians place a great deal of stock in the opinion polls. Now, what does this dependence on opinion polls suggest? Well, among other things, it certainly suggests a great reliance on public popularity. And to a certain degree, that is inescapable in a democracy such as our own, where the government is elected by popular vote. The people of the land choose The government. An obsession with such polls, however, is an indication, among other things, of a desire for power. If you know what everyone is thinking, what you can get away with, and what will will win you votes, politicians believe, then you have a better chance of gaining power. Power or gaining more power and popularity. In this way of thinking, your political strategy determines either your success or your doom as a politician. I'm sure you would agree, brothers and sisters, that in that way things aren't much different today than they were in the days leading up to the birth of Christ. Especially if you consider the history of things in that time. Caesar Augustus was in power. He was the emperor over the Holy Roman Empire. Why? Because he was a genius at political strategy. At least, that was the popular belief. And that still is among historians. Octavian, that was the name by which he was first known, had been part of the triumvirate together with Mark Antony and Lepidus after the murder of the great Julius Caesar. And Octavian was then named the chief heir of the emperor. It was Julius Caesar's nephew. So there was a triumvirate in power, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus. Lepidus was the first of the three to fall from power. This alliance couldn't last too long. And after Antony became involved with Cleopatra of Egypt. Octavian won a decisive victory over him at the famous Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Octavian was then acknowledged as Augustus Caesar by the Roman Senate, and he held power until his death some 40 years later. His strategy not only gave him the, the ability to procure power and to lim- eliminate his rivals in the triumvirate, it also made him successful in establishing peace in the Roman Empire, what is known as Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Now brothers and sisters, if there is one inescapable political factor which every politician and people must come to grips with, is the one we find in our text. Namely, that it's not the will of the people that determines history and politics, nor is it the will of a genius political strategist but rather, it is the will of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and His Anointed One who determines all events on earth. That brings us to our question that occupies our minds this afternoon. What has Rome to do with Bethlehem? And Luke tells us everything. Everything. Rome has everything to do with Bethlehem. We're told in in our text in verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And the purpose of this census was to assess all the client provinces of the Roman Empire for taxes. The Roman Empire sprawled over the whole known world at that time. And so, Caesar Augustus wanted to have a census so he knew what to assess each province for taxes. And this was a decree with which no one could or dared to quibble. If Caesar issued a decree, you didn't argue with that notice brothers and sisters that luke presents joseph and mary as loyal subjects of rome they realized as as paul would write later that the authorities that exist are established by god you know how rome how paul talks about that in his letter to the romans chapter 13 there he says romans 13, verse 2, that in verse 1, actually, the authorities that exist have been established by God. And then he also says later in the verses 6 and 7, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Joseph and Mary realized, as Jesus Himself would later say, that they needed to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In this respect, Joseph and Mary were faithful Israelites. They were upright and godly people. They honored the government that God had established over them. Wicked and corrupt. And power-grabbing, though that government may have been. This certainly applies to us too, brothers and sisters. The government that God has established over us Is a government to which we owe our respect, our honor. Yes, even our taxes. As upright and godly people, we need to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, so to speak. We need to render respect and honor to our Prime Minister, to our Premier, to all those who govern over us, no matter who they are. For they have been established by God. They are God's servants, as Paul says. The authorities are God's servants, Paul says there in Romans 13, verse 6. So we don't speak of the government the way the citizens around us do. We pay our taxes... We don't hide things from the government. You know, Joseph and Mary could have made all kinds of excuses not to make that long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Do you know how long that journey was? Almost 100 kilometers. And they had to go on foot, maybe with the help of a donkey. But it still took three or four days. Remember that Mary was with child in her eighth month. And I'm sure... The ladies among us who are with child at eight months would probably not want to go by foot on a journey like that. Almost a hundred kilometers long. But they went. They gave to Caesar the honor and the respect that was Caesar's. They didn't make excuses for themselves And brothers and sisters, we also shouldn't make excuses when it comes to taxes, when it comes to laws that have been set in place by our government. We need to obey them. We need to follow them. In every respect, unless, of course, we are commanded to do something that is directly contrary to God's law. As we see in our text, Luke, Dr. Luke, as we know him, is a historian. He tells us what happened, what was going on in those days he gives us He gives us a picture of current events at the time of jesus' birth. He gives us a, a picture of what was happening in that time he's a historian, but Notice that Luke is a historian of the Holy Spirit. He is a historian of a very special kind. He's a historian inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit. So we should pay very close attention not only to what he says, but also how he says it. What does he say? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now literally, as comes through in other translations, it says, it happened. It happened in those days. Or it came to pass. We recognize that language, don't we? We recognize that language as the language of the Old Testament. It happened. It came to pass in those days. And then when we hear that term used in scriptures, then we always understand or are made to understand by the Holy Spirit that this is the meaning. This is something that the sovereign God has caused to happen. The sovereign God has caused this to happen. And that's why it happened. The sovereign God has made this come to pass. That is why it came to pass. You see, brothers and sisters, the decree which Caesar issues is not so much his as it is God's. Literally, again, if we go back to the original and you will also find this in other translations, literally it says, it happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now the difference is very subtle, but significant. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You see, brothers and sisters, Caesar issues the decree, but it's God's decree. God had decreed long before Caesar was born, even long before Rome became a power to reckon with, God had decreed that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem as we read in Micah 5. The Lord had said, This is what will happen. The Lord had said that in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, the Savior would be born. See, brothers and sisters, to everyone else, even certainly to Caesar himself, it seemed as though the emperor was acting on his own initiative. The great Augustus Caesar has has issued a decree You better listen. You better obey. To the outside observer, it seemed as as though no one could tell Caesar Augustus what to do. No one would dare. After all was was he Octavian not in power because no one, not even Lepidus and Mark Antony, could withstand his political will and genius. No, in fact, brothers and sisters, there's a pretty good possibility that Caesar Augustus didn't even know that the little hamlet of Bethlehem existed let alone that Joseph and Mary who were in Nazareth needed to be there to give birth to the Messiah. But that's okay, isn't it? Because our sovereign God reigns, as Isaiah says in his great prophecy in chapter 40. What has Bethlehem to do with Rome? Nothing as far as Caesar Augustus was concerned, except to submit, except to obey the decree that I have issued in Caesar's mind. But the sovereign God looked upon it differently. Caesar Augustus was certainly convinced that Rome was the seat of political power. That Rome was the place from which all authority and power extended over the whole empire, over the whole known world at the time. Also over Judea. Also over Nazareth. But the Lord had determined that Rome notwithstanding, out of Bethlehem would come a ruler for Israel who would be exalted above all earthly rule. See, brothers and sisters, in spite of appearances, it wasn't Caesar Augustus who was calling the shots when he issued the decree. The decree of God just went out from him. It was the sovereign God of Israel, the God of the nations, who was in charge. In spite of appearance. It wasn't Caesar Augustus who was moving people around around his empire at his own whim, even sending women with child in their eighth month on a journey of 100 kilometers. Rather, it was the sovereign God of Israel, the ruler of the nations, who was moving people around so that Joseph and Mary were where he wanted them to be so that his son would be born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the city of David, as had been prophesied. Emperor Augustus was known as the emperor of peace. He was known as the one who established the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There are significant differences, however, between this emperor of peace and the king of peace who was born, the king of peace whom we know and worship. Martin Luther once said that the Antichrist always apes the true Christ. And that's what we see here in our text too. Satan sets up Caesar to ape Christ as the Prince of Peace. He thinks that he has an edge on God. He thinks, I'm going to get Caesar Augustus into power three decades before Jesus is even born. And I'll make him the Prince of Peace. I'll give him whatever help he needs to establish the Holy Roman Empire, to establish the Pax Romana, So that no one will think about the Pax Christi. The peace of Christ. But he fails. The powerful Emperor Augustus, the so called King of Peace, apes Christ, even though he doesn't even know it himself. In fact, did you know, brothers and sisters? that Caesar Caesar Augustus even believed that he was the divine son of the great Julius Caesar, who was also honored as a sort of God-king. Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus' uncle, was believed to be a sort of God-king, a divine king. And so... Augustus Caesar was considered and even called Son of God. That's really what the name Augustus means. Divine. Divine Caesar. Caesar, Son of God. You see, Satan understands, doesn't he, brothers and sisters? That if he's gonna get any credibility, if he's gonna get any traction, then he needs to ape the real thing. And that's exactly what, what we're told would happen in Revelation 13 verse 10. Satan apes the Christ. Revelation 13 verse 11, John's, in the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, One says, then I saw in my vision another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Two horns like a lamb. Now why would he want to look like a lamb? Because he wants to ape the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wants to present himself as the one who is going to bring salvation and redemption and peace and power. The beast that comes out of the earth has two horns just like the lamb. Because he is the deceiver of this world. But he fails. He at least is not going to convince the people of God who've believed and hoped upon Jesus' coming. For notice the differences. Caesar Augustus didn't didn't come to the throne by the right given to him by God, nor the privilege given to him by God, but Jesus did. God had never promised Caesar Augustus that he would sit on that throne and that his descendants would sit on that throne in the Holy Roman Empire forever and ever. He didn't promise that the Roman Empire would never end. But He did promise that to Jesus. Remember the promise that He had made to David that one of His descendants would sit on His throne and that that throne would last forever? We know what happened to Rome. It's fell. But God's kingdom lasts forever and ever. His kingdom has no end. Caesar Augustus' throne didn't last, but Jesus' throne stands firm Forever. There's another difference with Caesar Augustus. Power came before peace. Before he could bring peace to the Roman Empire, Caesar had to flex his military muscles. And because of the peace that he brought to the Roman Empire was a fragile peace, the power he possessed was as temporary as the man himself was. Caesar Augustus died and so did the Holy Roman Empire. You say Christ also possesses power. Yes, He does, but He does that through peace. First, Christ brings peace by shedding His blood and then He receives power from on high. And the peace that He brings is an everlasting peace. Just like the power and authority that He's been given by the Father. Caesar Augustus must bring peace to Rome through power. But Jesus obtains power by bringing peace. That's what we read in Philippians 2, which we'll also sing... Later, your attitude should be that the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." What did He do? By that death, He he procured our peace. And only once He had procured our peace by shedding His blood, only then was He given all power as Paul says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What has Rome to do with Bethlehem? Everything you see. It has been said, as I'm sure you know, it has been said that all roads lead to Rome. Well, maybe they used to. But not according to the Gospel. According to the Gospel, Rome is just a signpost along the way. A signpost, in fact, that will fall over and that will be thrown in the trash. Rome is just a signpost, a temporary signpost along the way of God which directs all the traffic to Bethlehem where the Savior is born. Rome. Caesar Augustus, unbeknownst to Caesar Augustus himself, Directs the traffic to Bethlehem. All roads lead to Bethlehem. Because all roads lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great Caesar Augustus, the decree he issues accomplishes the Lord's sovereign will the most brilliant political strategist of his day, he could not and would not be able to outwit God Almighty. He could ape as the emperor of peace and the son of God. Yet God made sure that everything Caesar Augustus did would aid the Christ and get Christ onto the throne so that he would reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as a Prince of peace whose kingdom will have no end. See, brothers and sisters, it's not the pollsters whom the politicians must heed. In the words of Psalm 2, in the book of praise, take heed, O rulers of the earth, and here be wise, O King, and let God's edict warn you. In other words, don't listen to the polls. Listen to God. Listen to God. Let His edict warn you. It is not the vainly contrived schemes of brilliant politicians that will stand. Rather, it is the decree which the Lord has declared. As we'll sing soon in Psalm 33, it is His counsel which forever stands. According to the decree of the Lord, Christ came into the world to save His people from, from their sin. And He will come again. Lift up your heads. The words of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors. On the eve of Advent, And as we enter Christmas, we too say, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He? The King of glory? Caesar Augustus? (laughs) No way. The Lord Almighty. His Son Jesus, born in Bethlehem. He is the King of glory. Let him come in, brothers and sisters. Let him come in. He is the King of glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.